0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is the second part of a two-part series with Professor Dale Martin on gender and sexuality in the New Testament, and perhaps the ancient world in general. So, you don't need to have listened to the first part to appreciate this one, But if you do want the context to that, you're more than welcome to go back and check that out. The first part is just called Gender in the New Testament, and in that we discuss exactly that. The role of gender, the idea of a gender spectrum in the New Testament, um, even some slightly weird ideas about like what gender will the resurrected dead be, and what was the role of women in the early church. So you're more than welcome to check that out. In this part we go into the historical Jesus. Did the historical Jesus have sexual partners? Was he homosexual or heterosexual? And what did he have to say about sexual relationships and about the family? Now, I really always appreciate my conversations with Dale Martin, um as long-term listeners will know, I did a three-part series with him in season one which became quite popular and i've learned a lot from these conversations and i think as much as anything um professor martin said scripture the ancient world is a tool to spark imagination looking at how differently different societies in human history have interpreted certain things and how different their beliefs have been including their beliefs about gender about sexuality about sexual and romantic relationships considering how different those beliefs have been should be a tool to open our mind to the spectrum of possibilities for how we think about them today and how we organize our societies and our social norms today so i found these conversations to be both very interesting just as an abstract unit of analysis but also very useful as tools to opening our eyes to what is really possible in this space and I hope you find them to be both of those things, too. I did a Twitter poll, um, and I asked what people's religious views were, and unsurprisingly, um, the big majority of our listeners aren't religious, which was sort of what I expected. But I encourage you to listen to these anyway. I'm an atheist, personally. If you want to hear me quarrel about atheism with Dale Martin, go back to an episode called Postmodern Christianity, where we go back and forth on that. We don't do that here. Um, But I'm an atheist, and I've got a lot of this out of this. And I would encourage you to approach it with an open mind as well. I have also heard from some Christians who've found these conversations valuable, so I certainly welcome that as well. As always, if you want to support this podcast, sharing episodes is always super valuable, and um, sponsoring us on Patreon is always super valuable. So you can just go online at patreoncom Podcast and any donation level that you'd like to make all of the costs associated with running this podcast are met by our listeners which is wonderful and incredible you're awesome people who should feel proud of yourselves um we don't have any sponsors and we don't do any advertisements at all because i think advertisements spoil the quality of podcasts so if you would like to support us please do check out our patreon page and as a reward for patreons patrons patreons I'm not quite sure what the noun is there. Um, I'm going to be doing some sort of um, supporter-only bonus episode soon. I don't quite know what it is. I might just take on a particular topic. I might do audience questions. Um, I could potentially do, like, an outtakes episode. So with this series, there, there was a tiny bit of audio I trimmed that didn't really fit in anywhere but was still kind of interesting. So... If you are sponsoring the show, um, why not shoot me an email or something and let me know what you'd like to see as a bonus episode, because I'm going to try doing one of them in the next, say, in the next month or so. So let me know what you'd like. Um, Yeah. As always, big thank you to people who share and sponsor. Let's get straight on with it and get straight into part two of this series. This is Jesus Sex and the Family with Dale Martin. If we're just playing the historical Jesus game. Um, that it's possible, probable, this is a real woman, no reason to think she's a prostitute, but a close companion of Jesus?
1: I think so. I don't think there's any question but that there was a historical Mary Magdalene and she was a member of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. But that doesn't mean that she was an apostle. And I find her with the beloved disciple, and identifying the beloved disciple with John, son of Zebedee, which is what tradition has done, that's just not historically defensible. You have to be more careful about your history. So, But I I don't think there's any question, for example, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, at least after Jesus' death, became a super important central figure in the church in Jerusalem. because There's just too many texts that indicate that. But it's also important that the earliest— surviving list of people who saw Jesus after his death, that is, had a resurrection appearance, um, is Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a list that he obviously inherited from people before him. So this may be a list of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection that goes all the way back to 34 or 35, you know, four or five years after the death of Jesus, and the women aren't mentioned. Hmm. Mary Magdalene's not on that list. So, you know, and that's the list we have. So, and I don't think you can say that this is Paul's prejudice because he's giving a list that he obviously has been handed at some point and and Mary Magdalene is not mentioned. So, you know, what does that say? Do we then doubt? all four Gospels, which all have Mary playing a central role in the post-resurrection narratives. You know, it's just, I, I think it's just one of these historical things where you are just going to have to throw up our hands and say, Mary Magdalene is obviously a historical person and she's obviously a central figure. Otherwise, she would not be mentioned so many different times.
0: And you also just get the feeling men don't give women an outsized role in the narratives if it wasn't real.
1: Yeah. Why would they invent this is a thing. And other people say, well, the list that Paul is handing on reads more like a legal list. These are, these are witnesses in a kind of legal sense. Well, women couldn't be witnesses in a legal sense. So maybe the reason there aren't any women on the list and Mary Magdalene on the list is because legally they couldn't be eyewitnesses for this kind of thing. So some people have said that, but, you know, you go, well, that's a guess. But you don't have any proof of that.
0: Talking of, like, open guesses, my, my question with Mary Magdalene was less um, as, as an apostle, but more as her role that she's been... And it's not just Dan Brown, it's all sorts of things, as a romantic partner for Jesus. And again, we're playing with... This is just guesswork, right? Either way, do we, do we have yeah. anything to sort of have, shade the probabilities?
1: As I have pointed out, that's heterosexist guesswork. Right. You have a lot more... You have a lot more uh, possibility that when Paul's telling Thomas, here, put your two fingers here, penetrate my body, Thomas. I'm inviting you to penetrate me. Or when Jesus is asking Peter to love him, is he loves him, or the disciple whom Jesus loves in the fourth gospel and who lies on Jesus's chest, his tits, at the last supper, you know, why not make those Jesus' partners.
0: So okay, let's let's rewind, because like this is this is the the whole Sex and the Single Savior chapter, right? Is yeah, I mean, what what can we say? So obviously Jesus Jesus's sexuality has been imagined a whole bunch of different ways. Probably most commonly as like what I guess we today would call asexual. Like the most classical read is that he just didn't have sexual urges, which is sort of weird because a lot of other really important religious figures, like I'm thinking of like Muhammad or or, or Moses or people like that, we know all about their sort of sexual escapades. Now, I guess you might say they're prophets and not God, full stop. But the, the traditional narrative of Jesus has always been that he just didn't have sexual urges. But then, of course, there's always been this undercurrent of imaginings. But then if you wanted to try and get to like the history history, there's a lot of touchy-feely descriptions of Jesus, and particularly his male apostles, right? That yes. you just referenced.
1: Yes. And basically, I've just argued that we don't know. Uh, we don't have enough historical data Uh, It's not surprising that uh, the historical Jesus may not have been married. Um, uh, As tradition has said that he may have been 30 years old or so, Uh, that's not a historical fact. It's just tradition, and it's in one of the Gospels. But it it wouldn't at all be surprising that a 30-year-old Jewish male would not be married in this period,
0: because that's the argument you get from people who want to have some sort of conspiracy theory version of this. Is that it would have been very remarkable if he'd been unmarried at that age? But you're saying that's just that's not that's not a
1: well. People, people who say that are depending on rabbinic texts that come from three or four centuries later, which were encouraging marriage. If you look at you know, lots of studies have been done of. Funeral inscriptions, Jewish funeral inscriptions or uh, and yeah, no, uh, what it was unusual for a woman at that to get to that age without being married. But men tended to marry women who are much, much younger than they. Um, And so you could have a 30 year old man easily marrying a 12 year old girl. Um, And he may not have been able to marry before them because he couldn't afford to. And there were there were too few women women died at a much earlier age than men um, so there were not as many marriageable women of the age of twenty five as there were marriageable men of the age of thirty so there's been a lot of demographic study using kind of funeral inscriptions and census things and that kind of stuff that showed no it was not it would not be unusual for a um, a Jewish man to be thirty years old and not married
0: okay so if we're going to play the um historical guessing game about jesus's sexuality then the, the the there's no reference to him being married doesn't actually tell us that much either way no okay what could we briefly cover what, what, what do we call it sexual aesthetics sexual aesthetics because paul was a sexual aesthetic right aesthetic.
1: Aesthetic.
0: Aesthetic. okay what does because this doesn't really exist so much in the modern world what what, what is this
1: well, it's coming back. I don't know if you've been <laughs> up, but there's a, there's a publishing industry about the new celibacy, um, especially women claiming new celibacy as liberating. So there's, there's, there are several books in the last 20 years that have basically said we need to recover, uh, not some people, religious asceticism, but other people just Social asceticism, apart from any religious interests.
0: So, in other words, it's a, it's a chosen celibacy. It's a voluntary celibacy. Yes. yes, And in Paul, this is linked to a view of sex, all sex, as sort of polluting and contaminating.
1: Well, that's debatable, but I I would lean that way. I would th- I think that I think that Paul is part of a much bigger movement that sees um asceticism as being the way to be uh more masculine and in control
0: um so if we know that one of the earliest right the earliest writer and one of the earliest followers had this view of sex and the undesirability of it in some sense would it be crazy to project that attitude back um and suppose is is that another plausible candidate for jesus's sexuality that he might have um been had sexual urges homosexual or heterosexual but that he chose to abstain for purity reasons say
1: well the way i put it is i think there's really good evidence that the historical Jesus was anti-household, that he did not encourage the traditional household. But that—I've also left open the possibility, well, did that mean no sex? Or can we entertain the possibility that he opposed the household but didn't oppose sex? And I think that's a possibility.
0: Let's close with the the household stuff. Before we do, I put a flag in you said the the heterosexual homosexual dichotomy didn't exist in the ancient world. I mean it just didn't, right? Like um in ancient Greece it was quite normal to, for most men to have sex with both men and women, particularly young men. Um, yes. do you want to say a few words about that?
1: Well, we don't we don't have we don't know what we can say about how many men actually did have sex with other men, but it certainly existed. And so we can certainly say that the cultural um, acceptance of male male sex is all over the place in the ancient world. Um, In other words, it's just not considered unusual or condemned at all, at least until late antiquity and maybe among some of the Romans. But um, the the main idea was that um, you you couldn't be male and be penetrated. especially by someone who's socially inferior to you. So the idea that a free head of household would be able to have all kinds of sex with his male servants or slaves or his clients, for example, that is men who are lower than him, than he on the social scale, that was simply assumed. And in fact, you can just see how prevalent it is by reading Artemidorus's dream handbook he, he talks about has a whole chapter on what are the meanings of dreams by who you have sex with in your dream and male, male sex is all over the place. Now what's interesting is Artemidorus seems to place in the category of unnatural um, female, female sex. But that seems to be part of a category that he just can't imagine how it's physically possible to do. And the, He seems to think that, you know, a woman can't really penetrate another woman because she doesn't have the equipment to do it. So that must be unnatural. So if you have a a dream where a woman is penetrated by another woman, that must be unnatural. It's an unnatural dream, an unnatural sex. But men penetrating other men is just all over the place. So we we don't know how many people are actually doing it, although I would say that probably quite a bit since it's all over the literature. And it doesn't matter whether it's philosophical literature or novels, Greek novels, Roman novels, discussions, dialogues, arguments. You know, it it is going on. But how much of it is going on, who knows?
0: Now, is that contradicted at any point in the New Testament? As There's, there's bits of Paul, right, that can be read as, like, anti-male homosexuality.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think, I think, I think that... The Greek word male um, includes any kind of same-sex uh, behavior.
0: But that's a more general prohibition on a, a, a whole blanket category of sexual acts that would include homosexuality, but it's not a it, specific prohibition against it?
1: No, it, it includes anything that the writer thinks is wrong. So it would include a woman penetrating a man. It would include a woman being on top. It would include masturbation. It would include uh, having sex even with your wife, purely for pleasure rather than for procreation. Um, you know, David Wright and, uh, I mean, David Reed and Jennifer Wright Knust and I just published an article in which we showed that uh, among Second Temple Jewish writers and early Christian writers, the word porneia had a very wide range of meaning. It basically meant whatever the writer thought was wrong.
0: Which in Paul's case is basically like Sex. Exactly. Period. Um, So that brings us to the anti-family point in that...
1: Well, I have to to correct that just a bit. Yeah. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul doesn't forbid sex between a marriage couple. In fact, he says uh, you should have sex so you won't experience sexual desire.
0: This is one of the weirder... Yes, (laughs) Yes, it's very- <laughs> reasons for having sex that I've heard. Yes, this doesn't sit easily on the modern libertine no, ears. No, this,
1: this is one of my arguments that I've made over the years that probably most scholars find unpersuasive. But I think I've shown evidence that the Stoics also held this view: that you can have sex without experiencing sexual desire, and that's the goal. And I think that's what Paul is arguing for in 1 Corinthians 7. But he even says, if you're married, you know, your partner may need to have sex with you. And so she owns your body and you own her body. So it's a mutual thing. That's another weird thing is that Paul, it's very unusual in the ancient world. He gives the woman in a married relationship authority over her husband's body also. And so he says, go ahead and have sex. so you you won't burn with passion. Well, burning with passion means having sexual desire. So he's basically saying, have sex so you won't have sexual desire. Now, I proposed this in an article and it's in the Sex and the Single Savior book also, been published in a few different places. And a lot of my fellow scholars just don't buy it. But a lot of reasons they don't buy it is because they think that's just impossible. This is just-
0: well, is he is he saying so you don't have sexual desire while you're having sex, or is he more like saying get it out your system so you're not walking around horny all the time? Because the latter's at least intelligible.
1: I think he's saying don't have sexual desire, so you won't have sex, so you won't experience desire. Period.
0: That that seems psychologically implausible to the modern mind.
1: Exactly, which is precisely why I proposed it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but okay, but then you've that that also does lead to a view of of sort of marriage as almost like a second best. The best is to just not oh,
1: absolutely. absolutely. And Paul says quite explicitly, I would prefer that everyone be just as I myself am. And I think what he means by that is single and celibate.
0: So Paul might almost show up as like an asexual in today's terms. Yes so but this is what's so weird is so i used to work for hrc human rights campaign which was a gay rights advocacy group during the time the um the whole marriage equality debate was going on and when you talked to religious people um they were often very nice about it but unfailingly the argument was always rooted in marriage right as if this was the central teaching of the new t- and i didn't know much about the New Testament at the time, and my argument just was always church-state separation. You can believe that personally, that's fine, but that shouldn't inform public policy. But actually, now that I've done your course and I've read your books, I've spent some time with the New Testament a bit, it's not just that marriage isn't a central concern of the New Testament writers. It's it's almost looked down upon by many of them, particularly Paul, right?
1: Yes, in fact, I can recommend another book um, that I uh, worked with the author to revise his dissertation from Toronto, and the book was published by Yale University Press. The author is David Wheeler-Reed, who wrote the Pornea article with me and Jenny Knust. Um And unfortunately, I'm having trouble remembering the title, but uh, uh, he had written a dissertation in which he tried to you know, make the whole thing about Christianity anti-marriage. And I said, um, you don't need to, you don't need to prove what people are actually doing. Um, but I say, well, why don't you, you need to write a book, and that starts off with the Augustan marriage legislation, which it in, it encourages marriage, encourages the household, encourages childbearing, and study the ideology of that whole pro-household thing. And then turn to Jesus and Paul and a few other authors of the New Testament and early Christianity to show this. there's a very different ideology, an anti-household, anti-marriage ideology that grows up in Christianity. But the problem is, see, even in the New Testament, you get these two ideologies battling each other. So that Jesus and Paul look like they're anti-household. But then Colossians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus— they're very pro-household. They're encouraging house. They're encouraging childbearing. They're encouraging the household. So I say, what you, don't try to make it seem that the pagans were doing one thing and the Christians were doing something else. Because this battle between these two ideologies occurs also in early Christianity, even in the New Testament itself. So we have to see these as two different battling ideologies of the household and sex and marriage.
0: This is so weird because it's like, okay, a lot of the stuff we've covered is very weird and very counterintuitive to the modern mind, but then if the historical Jesus had views similar to Paul, which were sort of against Saxon marriage in general, that would also be quite weird and radical by the standards of the time, right?
1: Uh, not not compared to the standards of our time, because but but to their time. No, to their time, asceticism was a, still in a very important movement. Okay. In, for, in other words, Augustus is promoting the pro-marriage laws hmm. precisely because there he's afraid that there are too many upper-class Roman men who are practicing asceticism.
0: Oh, so this was in. This was in like the Greco-Roman world as well. It wasn't just yes. like a Jewish thing.
1: Yes. So Judaism and Christianity did not invent asceticism. This was proven many years ago by Michel Foucault in his History of Sexuality series of books, so, of which now four. Um, you know, he kind of goes back and he uses Peter Brown, who's a patristic scholar. Peter Brown got to know Michel Foucault in California when they were both teaching together in Berkeley or something, and and so Michel Foucault totally knows nothing about christianity really but he he is turned on to this idea that wait a minute christianity did not invent asceticism this is a a live this is a live option in the greco-roman world also
0: so it was a sort of thing it was like something that was recognized
1: and known about yes yes christianity took it over from the wider world christianity didn't invent it
0: what's so we know Paul because we have him in his own words. What's your best historical guess as to what the historical Jesus believed about marriage, divorce, and sort of the acceptability or permissibility of sex?
1: I think Jesus was opposed to the traditional household. What he believed about sex, I think, is up in the air.
0: Right.
1: He doesn't talk about it, but he has a lot to say about his disciples forsaking their households. Uh, even leaving their wives uh, to follow him, so I've argued that Jesus's own movement, his own ministry, was an attempt to produce an eschatological apocalyptic alternative to the traditional Mediterranean family, and I think you can piece that together from all four gospels. Um, and, and I think that that's I think that's pretty provable that the historical Jesus. Even when the gospel writer tries to kind of paper over some of that.
0: You can um, feel a level of uncomfortability with the source material, right?
1: Exactly. So one of my articles that is also included in The Sex and the Single Saviour, is a republication, is how do you jive the idea that I think the historical Jesus forbade divorce in any form? Right.
0: Which again is is an idea that the later writers are uncomfortable with and they push it around a little bit.
1: But I think that historical Jesus completely forbade divorce, so you would think that means that he's pro-family and pro And I've tried to argue that no, it doesn't mean that you can you can be as we've seen many times you can be against marriage, but also against divorce at the same time. We see this happening throughout history in different places. So I've argued that even though Jesus seems The historical Jesus forbids divorce, and the Jesus of both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark forbids divorce entirely. Yet I don't think he encouraged marriage. I think he discouraged marriage, even to the point of asking his disciples to leave their wives. And what I've said is that, you know, how could you have this? And one of the things I've said is, this seems totally ridiculous, but I've said, if you really want to destroy marriage forever, forbid divorce. Because no one, no one would get married if they never thought divorce was an option.
0: So it's the the unworkability of the commandment is a feature, not a bug. That's the point of it's,
1: it. Yes, that's what I've suggested. But that's also, as you, know, you say, crazy. But I'm... I'm always arguing things that are counterintuitive.
0: Right. But, I mean, counterintuitive is kind of the ballpark when we're dealing with the ancient world, right? In that the, these people just, they're not like us. And it's not even like, you know, the World War II generation was different to us. They're, they're still, uh, uh, these. we can understand them in some way. These people are not like us who live in the ancient world. No,
1: in fact, in, fact what in my theology book, Biblical Truths, you know, the last chapter on the church, I make a big point about saying that The idolatry for the modern American church. There are three idols for the modern American church. Capitalism, um, the family, and nationalism. And liberals and conservatives alike in the U.S., whether they're Christian or not, they believe those are the enduring values. Nationalism, we all all have to be patriotic. We all have to be good Americans. Capitalism. Capitalism is the only way to go. There's no other alternative. And the family. We all have to be pro-family. It doesn't matter whether you're a leftist or a right-winger, you have to be pro-family in some way. And I've said, Christianity doesn't support any of those three, if read properly.
0: Or at least it's certainly the historical Jesus and the historical Paul Right, would be completely against all three of them. Yes, which is like, and this sort of goes, I guess, back to the postmodernism. is I can just, I, I have no skin in the game looking at this. I can sort of say, you know, Jesus might have been pro or anti-homosexuality. I mean, the category doesn't even exist then, right? Um, right. But... <sighs> it must be weird to be inside of a tradition where almost everyone else inside of that tradition is holding views that you think are wrong, but also holding views that don't seem to have understood the foundational documents of that tradition at all. Right. And that wasn't just a sentence. It wasn't a question.
1: Right.
0: That's my life. Does it not... Do, do you not like go insane sometimes? Like how, no. how no. seriously Christianity is taken and like.
1: No, no, it's because I'm right. <laughs> well, right, okay. <laughs> I have the stubbornness of overconfidence.
0: So you, that's just where you land with this. Well, I'm right and you're wrong, even if you're. of my movement, because I'm not just talking about, like, homophobic Christians, like, even liberal Christians, like you say, would place the family. Yes. Do you take a personal meaning out of that, then? I mean, in in your life? Do you...
1: Well, yes, certainly. I mean, I'm I'm not in a... I'm a gay man. I'm not in a relationship now. Hmm. But, you know, if I were in a relationship uh, with another man, and he said, I want us to get married... I would be severely conflicted. I would I would probably say, let's please not do that. Really? Yes.
0: And is that informed by your Christianity?
1: Yes. And and yeah, by Marxism and all other kinds of things that, you know, modern marriage, modern state sanctioned marriage is anti-revolutionary. It's It's just the promotion of capitalism, um, and it's – so the way I put it, and I put like this in my book, is that once you allow either the state – let's just put it the state. Once you allow the state to sanction one form of relationship, mm. you, by that very action, are giving the state the right to outlaw every other form of relationship.
0: No, and I mean, yeah, that's fine. I'm just thinking more like the fact that a particular arrangement is state-sanctioned doesn't make it wrong, per se. I mean, I, I have very conflicting feelings on this, because I am married and I do find value in that. But that's... One, not anything I ever really planned to do with my life. It's just where I landed. And two, I don't regard that as normative for anyone else. I think we can go from this works to me, for me, to this works all too fast in these things, right?
1: Yeah, I keep going to go back to, so why does it work, though? the reason it one of the reasons at least it works for you is because it gives you privileges that it doesn't give other people
0: that's true that's true and it's also not just true in the in the sort of formal legal sense, right? It's not just true that, say, before we had gay marriage, I can access certain legal rights that a gay couple couldn't. That's true. It's also true in the more broader societal sense, in that having a two-income household is just a good economic arrangement for people who are struggling to enter the middle class. It's a good way of retaining wealth. It really is. But that's not something inherent to the form of the the relationship that, that is how our society is set up and designed, well, that's, right?
1: That's not against. I'm not against people having relationships with one of the people. Mm. What I'm against is giving the power to either the church or the state to sanction that. Right. I don't, I don't care who you want to fuck. Right. And I don't care who you want to live with. And you could live with one person and fuck somebody else. far I don't care. What I care about is... Allowing, is giving the power to the state or the church to sanction any kind of relationship rather than other kinds of relationships. I mean, it wouldn't be as bad if we were in France, you know, where the government basically just says, you know, you can make any kind of contractual relationship with anybody you want to, even more than one person. We don't care. And we'll give you state, you know, recognition of it if you need state recognition of for something. But that's not the way it works in America.
0: Right. And that's probably correct. I mean, my only thing, a lot of libertarians make this argument in that we just don't want the government in marriage at all. My only slight concern with the argument is there are certain things, for instance, to do with, say, immigration status or something like that, right, where you do need the government to come in and recognise it in that... The One of the main reasons I'm legally married to my wife as opposed to just you know in a relationship, I could give a fuck about like marriage as an institution, is that it means we can live in both Britain and America.
1: You know and like the, the, way, the way I deal with all of these kinds of things is go to the root of the problem. The root of the problem there is not marriage. It's the immigration policies. And it's the same thing with children. People say, well, children, you know do better in a two parent family because of economic reasons and security I was going to say I said and I just say well then fix fix the problem about how we treat children in this country why should they need this private kind of support when every child in this country should be supported publicly
0: right i just i just find it interesting in the I've landed in a particular way of having relationships and living my life, um, which, I mean, I think there's two reasons for that. One is, like you say, it does give you access to certain social privileges. But I don't think I would have ended up in a long-term relationship for that reason alone. The other is it's just, you know, you find yourself in love, right? And that's where you land. I, I find it weird the idea that I would be informed in that decision by... A reading of a religious text that was written two thousand years ago, or even let, let, let's not even say religion. I, I would find it weird that I would be informed by, say, a reading of a political ideology or or something like that.
1: Yeah, but now you're slipping back into foundationalism, and you know I'm not a foundationalist. Right. I don't believe that I start from some foundation like a religious text hmm. or some. Theory of something and then go into ethics from that Everything is all a circle Everything is all mashed up together i I, I rather doubt that I ever would have read the Bible as I read the Bible mm. Had I not been gay and Single
0: Explain the last sentence to me I'm, I'm curious
1: I don't, I don't go from my ethics by some kind of intellectual reading of the Bible or anything else, philosophy, whatever. All of my ideas are a big mess of my whole life. What I'm arguing against is that you can move directly from a certain reading of the text to a certain politics. I'm just basically saying... For whatever reason, my politics are like this, and I can still use the Bible to inform them and to encourage them and to help them, to give them imagination. Scripture, for me, is a source of imagination, not a source of knowledge.
0: Okay, I have one final question for you, because I'm trying to find it in your book, but... um... I'm just going to sort of paraphrase you back to yourself, so this really parallels a thought I've been having in that I've talked to moral philosophy about to a lot of people who are really smart and really educated in it recently, and w- what I've argued is very much a morally consequentialist view in that we want to have all these rules, regulations, side constraints there's this like whole Kantian project of deriving certain principles from pure reason, and my argument is when it really gets down to it, and when push comes to shove, the only things we can possibly care about are how we experience ourselves, and how we experience other people in this world, and the avoidance of pain, and the desire for the best in ourselves, and the best for the people that we love. And there's a passage, I'm struggling to find it, but I sort of almost underlined it when I read it, where you said, you know, you can read the Bible this way and get this result. You can read the Bible this way and get this result. You you, you know what I mean? You can read it any number of ways. The own and you said this, the only ultimate test of the morality of a view is is it loving?
1: Yes, that's the Augustinian view. And if you look up Augustine in the index or De Doctrina Christiana, which is one of the places where he expresses it, although he expresses it he says no interpretation of scripture can be a Christian interpretation of scripture if it does not promote the love of God and the love of neighbor.
0: But that, to me, just sounds like. Which I'm saying this. This sounds like a criticism, but to me, this is a positive. That just sounds like a straightforward foundationalist moral consequentialism.
1: It's not foundationalist, but in this, because the thing is, you can't you can't know ahead of time from any text what the loving thing to do is. Right. And there's no prescription. You have, to, you have to constantly struggle and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do in this con- situation. Now, is it the loving thing to do? Well, let's see. It's actually more an american pragmatism than it is foundationalism.
0: Well, it's not foundationalist in the sense that you don't start knowing what the correct action is. But there's a lovely phrase from Henry Sidgwick where he says utilitarianism is the wrong word. What I mean is universal benevolence, Um, which captures it a lot more nicely. And it is foundationalist in a sense in that you're saying all of this other stuff, all these bells and whistles can go. What matters is... and how we feel. What matters is what matters, right? And how we feel and that people are happy. And that's the the bedrock. And anything that would conflict with that, you can sort of dispense with. That is a sort of just, to my mind, like that's the best reading of the utilitarian tradition. And what I read you were saying was almost that, but in very different language.
1: Well, yes, but what I'm saying is that um, through all of my work, is that you know you can't you can't just go from point A to point B um, in any of this. Uh, scripture is a way to stretch your imagination. Live in the Christian tradition, and you read other pre- Christians before us to try to say, well, what is the loving thing? What does love mean? Um, how, do we, how do we imagine love? And that might be through you know, reminding yourself of parables or reminding yourself of what Augustine says at some point, or reminding yourself of what Paul says, you know, we don't live in a vacuum and we can't live in a prescriptive world. We don't live by prescriptions. We live by narratives. And, and, you know, one of the things you, you kind of left out was that how you decide what the loving thing to do is you also, and this goes back to um, you know, Alistair McIntyre's writings or Stanley Harawass's writings or a lot of people, you have to develop character. You know, you have to develop your own character and you're not an island. You're not a brain in a pool. You are a huge, a, a entire person. And so all of these resources you just said that don't matter. Well, of course they matter because that's, that's how you form the the person that you are and and you, and you correct the person that you are, you know, you know, why do I go to church every Sunday? Why do I stand up and say the Nicene Creed? Why do I go up in front and eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus? It's because all of that every week builds me.
0: So, no, when I I say it doesn't matter, I'm not saying we can dispense with history. And I think I'll come back to that point. What I'm saying is you can get abstract rules, either coming from religion or some sort of philosophy, that 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 purport to be self justifying that just stand on themselves and and i I do think there's a value in rules in, in, if the, if following a rule is a way to promote human happiness or to be loving or whatever you want to call it, then sure but if if the rule isn't there's there's no point doing something for the sake of it. there's no point following a principle. Just for the sake of following a principle—that's what I'm saying. When I say you can get rid of the bells and, and, and whistles, and of
1: course, but you've got to think about you got to think about the the so-called rule about the rule of love. It's not a prescription. You're talking about okay, no, 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 no. It, it's, it's no, no. It's not. It's it, 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 simply it, something that it's simply something you keep reminding yourself of. You just say
0: it, it's the way we evaluate prescriptions. Right. It's 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 the way we think about if a prescription makes sense or not.
1: It's not even that it's that, you know, I wrote this in my books because, you know, if you have a the kind of views about the scripture and about text and meaning and foundations I have, people are always telling you, well, how the fuck do you have any idea whether you're doing the right thing? And I just basically said, well, this is something I remind myself of. I'm not saying it's it's going to produce the right results you don't even know what's the loving thing to do half the time. I said, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, it's a point you come around to every once in a while and just say, okay, let me remind myself of this. Uh, It's just part of the whole package of ways of being in the world. That's what makes it non-foundational. And yet it's a touchstone. Let's say a touchstone is not a foundation. It it
0: still I can't shake the feeling that this just sounds like moral consequentialism in very different language, and that's not no. a criticism. No.
1: Like I that's that's no that's I don't have any problem with calling it moral consequentialism. I like I say when people try to press me to identify myself theoretically and philosophically, I keep coming back to American pragma, pragmatism. Hmm. But it is Which it is,
0: It's strikingly analogous to the moves I make to get ethical systems off the ground, which is to say, and I'm using very different language to your using, which is I say, conscious experience and the fact of conscious experience is your fundamental axiom here. Yeah, I think therefore I am. We know we experience things. And then... You can broadly start to describe that in terms of what you might call desirability concepts. But those concepts are very vague and very imprecise and very loose and socially constructed with all of the history and whatever that goes into that. And so even saying something is desirable is to inject a level of uncertainty in that you've got to you know, acknowledge in the same way as you say you don't know what the loving thing to do is right but that's that makes sense as a way to get off the ground and i don't think anything else does i don't think i don't think this is divine law makes sense but i don't think this is an axiom of morality call it human rights or call it um you know whatever that's just freestanding and self-justifying and discoverable that that doesn't make sense either it's just people and our experience of each other as flawed and as as, as imperfect as we are. But what's weird is you say that's not a foundationalist, not a starting point view, whereas philosophers would regard what I just said as very reductive and very foundationalist.
1: Well, then I would just disagree, because everything you just said, I said, yeah, I could go along with it. I mean, I I think... Foundationalism is a very specific epistemological position. And I you know you can't you can't you, you can't throw the term around as if if you believe anything you're a foundationalist. That's not foundationalism. Right. Or if you have any ethical guidelines in your life, that's foundationalist. No, that's not foundationalism. Foundationalism is a very specific epistemological theory. And it doesn't describe what you just said.
0: Right. Well, I guess maybe it's a term that means something different in theology and philosophy, possibly.
1: No. Even in philosophy, you were not using the term experience hmm. in a old-fashioned, British, empirical, foundationalist sense. No. Now we can get down to real human experience, and then that will be our guide all the time. You were using the term experience in a much more fluid way. Right. That's what makes it non-foundationalist. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't mean you throw out experience. We can't throw out experience. We can't throw out our eyes. We can't throw out our you know feelings. We can't we can't throw out science. We can't throw out history. We can't throw out any of those things. Right. What, what's philosophical foundationalism is that there's some place where you can land on one of those experiences that doesn't have to be interpreted before it can be used. That's what foundationalism means.
0: There's a can of worms we're not going to get into there, um, but, I mean, I...
1: In other words, you don't throw out experience, but the old way, of the foundational way of how my experience is that I can somehow dig down to my experience that doesn't have to first be interpreted to be meaningful.
0: I would say um, there's axioms, right? Now... There's two levels of axioms. This is how I think about it. There's your true axioms, and then there's your political axioms. Your political axioms exist because you just have to fucking do something in that space. And so you just say, well, this is where we land. But then there's, like, axiom axioms. I would say that the fact of consciousness is pretty axiomatic for me. I'm overly impressed by the I think therefore I am statement like it seems you can doubt you can get as soon as you start applying language and desirability concepts you get all sorts of uncertainty built in but the fact that we are experiencing the world seems axiomatic to me and it doesn't seem something that's in need of that that is a starting point that's not in need in need of interpretation
1: i think I disagree, uh, and it's because maybe we're just using the term experience in two different ways. Possibly. Uh, I think I'm experiencing when I'm dreaming. And I wake up and realize that everything I was dreaming is completely wrong.
0: Right, but, 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 there, but there was an experience.
1: Yes. is isn't, de- de-
0: isn't deniable.
1: It has no relation to me to the truth by which I need to live I don't live by truths that occur to me in my dreams
0: no but that you have dreams isn't doubtable and that is but,
1: but I think therefore I am doesn't mean that I experience therefore I'm alive well maybe but then what do we mean by alive and what do we mean by experience I just think I just don't think those things mean anything when it comes back to it. Because experience is just whatever happens to be going on in my brain at the time. And I know full fucking well that's not reliable for truth. Right.
0: right. And you're never, you I don't think you're ever going to get moral truth to the same epistemic confidence that you do for science or something. But even, okay, we're not going to do philosophy of science, because like, there, there I do lean a bit Empiricist in a way that you're going to tell me I'm I'm being I don't know whatever, and I think that is that that is the uneasiness people have about the postmodernism thing is they 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 want to retain some set of starting points they don't they don't just want it all washed away
1: that's what anti-foundationalism means is we're not we're going to throw out the idea of starting points being any way epistemologically reliable. So, of course, we have starting points. I I have a starting point when I wake up in the morning. It's just I'm not going to give whatever my thought is when I wake up in the morning some kind of epistemological, uh, prescriptive um, status.
0: But you need – in the process of argumentation, you need premises, and there are better and worse premises that you can appeal to. I think that's what people are afraid might get swept out with the bathwater.
1: But – and we're going right back to what you said before what judges a better from a worse premise and i would go right back to what you said it's what it leads to does it produce truth or does it not produce truth
0: all right so i guess we should wrap up
1: sorry i always keep
0: you you shouldn't be interesting (laughs) thanks for doing this again i always i always i always enjoy these
1: yeah it's a pleasure talking to you
0: likewise (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week, I'm going to try and get the finale, the final part of my libertarianism series done. So if you haven't seen that yet, I, at the request of the audience, although I might have produced something slightly longer than people had in mind, I did an editorial episode where it's just me, and I talked about the history, the ideological history of the belief system that we now call libertarianism. And that kind of sprawled into a multi-part series that I've been getting out between the interviews. I'm going to try and have the final part of that done next week. And then I have some new interviews to announce. Stay posted to my Twitter and Facebook. And I usually announce interviews first there. So if you do want to follow me to get interview announcements episodes as they're released and i generally do some commentary and i'm snarky on twitter occasionally you can follow me there the links to all of that are on the website political philosophy podcast.com political philosophy podcast.com so please do check that out as always big thank you to anyone who shares and big thank you to anyone who sponsors on patreon thank you so much you're making the show possible to go out to thousands of people for free and ad free so you should feel good about yourselves and yeah i think that's it hopefully um i hope you'll come and join us again next week until then